turn with me, please, to the passage that we read together, uh, 1 Kings chapter 22, and I'd like to draw your attention to verse 34. 1 Kings 22 at verse 34, And a certain man drew a bow at a venture, and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness, wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn aside and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. And the battle increased that day, and the king was stayed up in his chariot against the Syrians, and died at even, and the blood ran out of the wound into the midst of the chariot, and so on. Our generation seems to be a generation that's obsessed with chance events. If we're not um, uh, over, overly concerned about chance events, we tend to think that we are the masters of our own destiny. And you have these two things going on. If something happens, it's an accident, it's a chance. You think, for example, of how almost every charitable institution has a lottery of some sort how the national lottery or the European lottery is um, uh, indulged in by millions. You think of the obsession with the idea of natural selection in the theory of evolution, where chance is the governing factor in whether or not man comes into being or not. Chapter uh, 22 here tells us how Ahab died. And uh, if anything could be further from a chance event, um, uh, it was the death of Ahab. And yet, to all appearances, it was an absolutely random um, uh, chance event because we're told a certain man, it's not even known who it was, drew a boat adventure. He was just firing off his arrow into the um, enemy host and uh, that um, arrow pierced through a joint in the harness, a space, a small space between the um, protective garment that Ahab wore, and it was a fatal wound. So that um, here we have this chance, what might be called a chance random event um, in the midst um, of battle, in the heat of battle, and uh, those who are obsessed with the notion of chance events would say that the whole dynasty of Omri, for Ahab was of the house of Omri, was brought down by a chance event. But the passage tells us an altogether different story. It uh, holds before us um, uh, the true and proper understanding of those things that men and women called accidents or chance events. It shows us um, certain profound things about Almighty God because it is God who is ultimately the chief protagonist here. It is God who is moving events and overruling events as we will see. Uh, Although Ahab and Jehoshaphat feature, although Micaiah um, uh, and uh, the false prophets may seem to be Um, important players. Um, uh, The uh, person who is responsible for the death of Ahab is a totally unknown person 
um, uh, known only to God himself. So what is it that this passage is teaching us about God um, uh, over against that false and uh, shallow view that men and women have of chance and uh, luck and such like today? Well, it reminds us, firstly, that God is in control. Uh, he is no mere spectator of the events of chapter 22. In the, uh, the narrative, from beginning to end, it is clear that God is governing and controlling and determining uh, the flow of events and the outcome of that day's business. And uh, we are reminded that although uh, providence has many surprises for us, there are no surprises for God. He knows all things from beginning to end, being the first and the last, the beginning and the end himself. And so he is sovereign over all things. The chapter also shows us that he is overruling all of these things. He is uh, sovereign, you will see, in the spiritual realm. In verses 19 to 23, we are told how um, uh, 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 God asks who will persuade Ahab to go up to Ramoth Gilead. And uh, the answer comes back from a spirit who says, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. In all uh, likelihood, either Satan or um, uh, one of his followers. And uh, we are reminded that as he is, uh, if you will, having that interview with the spirits, uh, that he is demonstrating that he rules in heaven and earth. He determines uh, what is going to happen. He calls for those um, uh, who will do his bidding. And when the suggestion is made that the spirit would be a lying spirit, it is God who gives the permission for him to go. Uh, he doesn't, the spirit doesn't act on his own cognizance. He is going under the command of God. And so we are reminded that God is sovereign over all in the spiritual realm, whether that be in heaven or in earth. He is sovereign over the spiritually good and the spiritually evil. Uh, you see that in the life of Job, how um, uh, uh, both good and evil are brought together in such close proximity and uh, the evil one is used uh, for our instruction in the life of Job, uh, of Job. You think of how Acts chapter 2, how Peter describes the crucifixion. He brings these two concepts together, the good and the evil, the just and the unjust, uh, the wicked and the good. And he says that um, you by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God by wicked hands have taken and crucified the Savior. And so you have the sovereignty of God demonstrated uh, throughout the scriptures, even in the, uh, uh, in the ex uh, experience of Christ um, and his crucifixion. So he is sovereign over uh, the spiritual realm. He's in control there. 
And we are not to think that things happen in heaven or in the realm of the spirits that are out with our control. Sometimes we tend to think that Satan is able to do as he pleases. But we are reminded here that it is thus far and no further that God says to Satan. He is also a a, a sovereign in the affairs of the nations. Because here we have three uh, prominent kingdoms of the time, uh, Israel and Judah and Syria. And he is ruling and controlling all the events that uh, are happening between these nations. He is um, uh, the one who is determining their course and their um, uh, duration, their prosperity and their government. And uh, that is so different from how men think of things today. They think of uh, spiritual acumen, uh, not spiritual, but political acumen. They think of um, uh, uh, human wisdom. They think of economic prosperity in terms of man's abilities, of man's determination, that men have the uh, right to determine the outcome of their nation. And we see that uh, even in our own day. We see uh, men who are determined to bring their own will to bear in the nations. But we are reminded here that God is sovereign in all of these things. It's not um, uh, the uh, politics of men or the power of men that will determine the flow of history. It is the sovereign purposes of God. He will bring to pass what he has determined. And we should be so grateful for that because it is only the sovereignty of God over all things, over the nations, over good and evil that has enabled the church to prevail, to exist for all these generations. And so we see his uh, sovereignty over all nations. But it's one thing to speak in general terms. You know how um, uh, uh, men and women are prepared to say, um, oh, we're all sinners. But when you get down to the nitty-gritty of um, uh, drawing out from them, but what about yourself? Well, I'm as good as anyone. I'm, I'm as good as my neighbor. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. So it's, it's easy enough to say all men are sinners. Uh, but when it comes to the individual, that's a different story. And some people might be prepared to say God rules over all, but not over me. And uh, that is something, uh, isn't it, that we are told in the parables of Jesus. We will not have this man to rule over us. But the fact is that uh, God rules over individuals, all their thoughts, all their words, all their deeds. This is a mysterious thing. You You know how David in Psalm 139 could say, for in my tongue before I speak, not any word can be, but altogether know, O Lord, it is well known to thee. And so it is here. Here we have these false prophets. They think they are speaking on their own volition. 
whether they thought they were speaking the truth or whether they knew they were speaking error, we'll leave it um, uh, for others to discuss. But the fact was, there's no doubt that they thought they were speaking um, uh, on their own volition. And there is a sense in which they were. But they were speaking what God would have them speak on their own volition. And that is the mystery of it. They are free. They speak freely. And yet God determines that they will be the instruments for causing Ahab to go up into Ramoth Gilead. He rules over all the past and present and future events of individuals. And do you see that in your own life, dear friends? Do you acknowledge that in your own lives? Uh, that um, uh, all your choices and decisions, although you are making them freely, you are not forced, you are not constrained, you are not bound, but they are what God has foreordained for you. You remember how uh, Paul, in speaking in Ephesians, he talks about um, uh, that the, the believers are to uh, search out, look for those good works which God hath foreordained that you should walk in them. And when we do a good work in the name of the Lord, we're doing it of ourselves as to the Lord. And yet it's foreordained that we should do that. It is a mysterious thing, but it's nevertheless true. And this chapter is showing us in a very practical way that God rules over all individuals. He determines the length of our days. He determines the day of our death. He had said that today, um, uh, he had said to Ahab through Micaiah, today is the day you're going to die. No, no, I'm not, says Ahab to himself. I'm going to make sure that I live. But God had determined it. And so we see how he rules over the spiritual realms, all nations, all individuals, and he rules over chance events. And that couldn't be better explained than in the book of Proverbs. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Think about that. Throwing a dice. You cast that lot into the lap and you think, what could be more random than that? But the whole disposing of that is of the Lord. And that is how it is here. Here we have a man. A man amongst many men in the army of the Syrians. His job is to fire arrows. That's what he's there for. He's an archer. He takes his bow. He takes an arrow. He fires it. And God determines where the arrow is going to go. God determines the wind forces upon that arrow. God determines where exactly on the armor it's going to hit. And it hits the place that is weak. It hits the place where a fatal wound can be caused. You think again of how after the um, uh, the corpse of Ahab is brought back to Samaria and there is someone and he's taking water and he's uh, as it were swabbing out the chariot to get rid of all the blood of Ahab and we're told the dogs uh, licked up the blood the dogs are there yes because dogs roam the street 
but because God had foreordained, he had prophesied that in this very place, the dogs would lick up Ahab's blood. And so you see how God is in control even over these uh, these um, uh, chance events. And he, rule, he rules over the means as well as the end that the means are moving towards. Psalm 139 is so clear in this. Behind before thou hast beset and laid on me thine hand. If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I go into hell, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning, thou art there. It matters not where we go. God is there. God is ruling. God is in control. And we are reminded of that. Now, why is this so important? Well, this is a truth that is so clearly taught to anyone who reads the Bible fairly. That God is in control. You say it's a mysterious doctrine. Yes it is. But it doesn't mean that it's not true. It's hated by men. Because they um, accuse God of being illogical. Or unfair. Or use it as an excuse for sinning. Well if I'm going to sin. Uh, God's foreordained it. Woe betide the man that tries to argue that with the, his maker. He is responsible for his sin. Who art thou, O man, that arguest against God? But why is it so important to us? Why is this event in the days of Ahab so important to us? Because we live in a world that seems to be out of control. We live in a world where men seem to be influencing things more than God. That is how it sometimes appear, appears. But that's not a new phenomenon. It was seen by the psalmists. It was seen in Psalm 37 when David spoke about, I saw the wicked great in power spread like a green bay tree. They were great, they were mighty, they were influential. Asaph in Psalm 73, he says the wicked prosper the godly suffer. What's the point? I have washed my hands in innocence in vain. What's the purpose? But both of them come to recognize or they remind themselves or are reminded that God is in control. We need to remember that. Are things hard in the church? God is in control. Is there a shortage of ministers? God is in control. Are we struggling through spiritual, um, a, a, a spiritual quagmire? God is in control. All of these things don't change the fact that God rules over all things. He rules over your life. And that doesn't mean that you have no responsibility to God. God is in control. And yet you are told to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is that very God that worketh in you both to will and to do. The means and the end to the means. He is working those things. And so we are responsible to coming to this God in whose life, in whose hands are our life. And we are responsible to, ask, to be asking him to order things 
for our salvation, to order things for the good of the church, to raise up godly men for the ministry. This is one of the things, isn't it, that Jesus says. He doesn't say to the church, raise up godly men. He tells the church that they are to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he might thrust forth those who would preach the word. And so we are reminded of the sovereignty of God. God is in control. But the second thing that I want to notice from this uh, chapter is this. It reminds us that God is not mocked. God is not mocked. You see, he's not mocked by sinners who seem to be getting away with sin. And we only need to read the Bible to see that. Sometimes they seem to get away uh, with sin for centuries. Do you remember when Abraham came into the land of Canaan, he was told, for the sins of the Amorite are not yet full. But they were filling up. And they've been filling up for years. Do you remember how year after year uh, uh, Israel was uh, oppressed in Egypt? They went down there and they were uh, in good graces with the Egyptians until there arose another Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And they persecuted the people of Israel for decades perhaps even longer. You might say, well, why are they not getting their comeuppance? You think of Saul. He reigned over Israel for a considerable time. He was one of the longest reigning uh, monarchs in Israel. Uh, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in Israel. And yet in all of that time, he is persecuting David. Why is the Lord allowing this? Here in the case of Ahab, Ahab was told many years before that God held him accountable for the death of Naboth. You remember that story. Here was Ahab. He wanted a a garden near, uh, near the wall of his house. He wanted easy access. And lo and behold, there's Naboth and he's got a vineyard just in the exact spot he wanted, he offers to buy it from uh, Naboth. In doing so, he would have transgressed. If Naboth had sold, he would have transgressed the law of God. He wasn't allowed to sell it, but nevertheless, he comes home and he sulks in his bed, just like a petulant child. I'm not playing anymore because I can't get my own way. And his wicked wife, Jezebel uh, connives to uh, have uh, uh, Naboth murdered. But God accounts Ahab responsible. And God says, you're not going to get away with this. And that's when he utters the, the, the promise that um, the, the dogs will eat, uh, uh, lick up the blood, your blood, where they licked up Naboth's blood. It seems so long. And yet here we see um, uh, 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 Ahab receiving his punishment. You see, sinners 
may sin, and they may prosper. I saw the wicked great in power. And they may um, uh, go on for years in their wickedness. But God remembers and deals with their sin eventually. And that's something we should remember. You know how you stand before God today. You know whether you are in Christ or out of Christ. You know whether you are acceptable uh, to God through the Savior or not. And the question is, why are you sinning against God? Because God will deal with that sin. God will punish that sin. So God is not mocked um, when sinners seem to get away with sin. He's not mocked by uh, hypocritical religion. Israel was full of religion. That was part of its problem. It was full of every religion except uh, Jehovah worship. And these false prophets, there was a multitude of them. The only faithful um, uh, witness in this whole narrative is Micaiah, um, and he's in a dungeon. And uh, it seems that um, hypocritical religion is so great. Many try to fob God off with the sop of ritual. They think that if they just do certain things that God is pleased with that. But God tells us that he is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in, spiritual, in spirit and in truth. Just going through the motions of coming to church and singing the psalms and saying the prayers and listening to sermons is not true worship in and of itself. God calls for spiritual worship. And so it is that uh, we are reminded um, uh, of uh, that hypocritical religion will not fob off God. He's not mocked by that. Some use an, uh, uh, their religion um, uh, as an excuse for not believing in Christ. They will say, I'm, I don't believe, but they will also say, I can't believe because God is uh, God has not elected me. And they're using the very thing that they despise as an argument against God. But God is not fooled by that. God is not fooled by these puny reasons. God is not mocked when men despise his mercy. You remember that Ahab had a great display of the mercy of God before, uh, or, um, uh, before these events. Do you remember at the siege of Samaria when uh, the Syrians surrounded uh, the city? And it seemed uh, they were in starvation mode. Um, uh, and things were uh, at a real um, uh, impasse. And the, the lepers outside the city gate, they dis they're in a quandary. Shall we go in and perish in the city? Or shall we go to the Syrians and cast ourselves on their mercy? So they go to the Syrian camp and, and it's empty. Because God had caused the Syrians to hear the sound of chariots and horses. Now, isn't it interesting? I only noticed this the other day when I was reading that. The people in Jerusalem never heard those, those chariots and horses. 
But God had caused them to hear and had fled and deserted the camp. And uh, we are told that in the midst of all this siege, um, uh, uh, Ahab rends his garments and underneath there is sackcloth. And because of that public display of humiliation, God spares Ahab at that time. He gives him space, space for repentance, an opportunity to turn back from his evil ways. But it's clear from this chapter that he despised that opportunity and he rebelled against that opportunity and he um, uh, went forward in foolish bravado I'm not afraid to go into battle. I'll dress myself up in ordinary army clothes. I'll face the enemy. Ahab, you're going to be killed. It won't happen to me. I can fool men. Well, that's fine, but not God. So God is not mocked when we despise his mercy, and he's not mocked by man's feeble attempts to, uh, to escape the judgment. Is this clear to you all, friends, that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ? That is as sure as anything. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We may fool men. We may cause men to think that we're all right. But we cannot please God. Ahab knew where God was. Uh, Ahab, sorry, God knew where Ahab was. God knew the weakness of his armor. God knew the man who would fire the bow. He knew all of these things. It's like the uh, grim reaper's scythe, just about to fall, and in the uh, and it is governed and controlled by the hand of God. You remember when Jesus comes again, as we see in the book of the Revelation, men and women are crying out to God, to the rocks and the hills to fall upon them and hide them on the, from the face of the Lord. Why? Because God is not mocked. And if there are any here who are trying to uh, fool God with something less than faith in Jesus Christ, God is not mocked, dear friend. So God is in control. And this passage teaches us that God is not mocked, but it also teaches us that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God never lies and God never pretends. He has promised that Ahab would die. He has promised that judgment would come. And it came. You see, what happens, and we have this in the book of Jude and in Second uh, Peter, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they always have done. Everything's the same. In the days of Noah, they said, a flood. Listen, it's been a hundred years since you told us it was going to be a flood. Why should we believe you? Because men um, uh, see the delay of God. 
not as a means given to them for repentance, but they see it as God being impotent, unable to do anything, or ignorant of their sins, or at worst indifferent to their sins. The long-suffering of God is intended to lead us to repentance. And that is something that we all must um, uh, grasp. If the words of Elijah and the words of Micaiah were fulfilled, will not Christ's words also be fulfilled? He has promised that there is no security on the judgment day except in Jesus Christ. He has shown us that there is a safe place, a safe refuge, and we must flee to it and trust in the Savior because there is no other place to be on that day. And we are told that all the promises of God are yea and amen in him. We've spoken particularly here because of the context on these things being true with regards to the enemies of God. But God's people can take much comfort in the fact that God is in control. Dear friends, you may be going through trials. Uh, trials that none of us know or perhaps could fully understand. But God knows. And God understands. And you have a high priest touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He is able to succor all those who come to him. You think again of um, uh, the way in which we say God is not mocked. And we rejoice in the fact that he has given us clarity um, uh, of mind and given us faith and enlighten us in the knowledge of Christ so that we are not seeking to mock him, but seeking to serve him. What a blessing that is. And that he keeps his promises. What a blessing. We are told and frequently in scripture, the meek shall inherit the earth. And it may seem utterly inconceivable today that that could ever be fulfilled. But it would have seemed utterly conceivable in the days of um, uh, uh, Exodus that Israel could ever be a nation on its own. It might seem, uh, it would have seemed impossible that the Red Sea or the River Jordan could ever part their waters. And yet it happened. You see, God keeps his promises. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, he says. And upon what basis is that given? Two things, the word of God and the character of God. Two things that cannot be broken or changed. All the scheming of men will come to nothing. The church will be there to welcome Christ when he returns. The church will be there to uh, look up expectantly to heaven, to behold the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints. Yes, this is God's warning um, to the wicked. If you're out of Christ, you will perish. Only in him is there life. 
but it is of great comfort and consolation to the people of God that God is in control, that God is not mocked, and that God keeps his promises. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, be pleased, we pray, to bless us. We acknowledge and confess our own uh, tendency to anxiety and doubt and, anxi and concerns. And we pray that we might learn indeed to cast our burdens upon the Lord. Lord, draw near to us, we ask. Have mercy upon us and grant us grace and forgiveness. If there are any here out of Christ, may they be brought to see the seriousness of being so. Give them uh, to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon his name while he is near. O Lord, have mercy upon them and grant to them saving grace. And we pray for thy people, often beleaguered and struggling and um, uh, anxious and concerned. May they come to put their rest and hope in thyself, the God who does not lie, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We ask this with the pardon of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us conclude singing from Psalm 34, verses 1 to 7. Psalm 34 and verses 1 to 7. God will I bless all times. His praise my mouth shall still express. My soul shall boast in God. The meek shall hear with joyfulness. Extol the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, he heard, and did me from all fears deliver. To verse 7.
stand for the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.